0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com
1: Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in June of 2023. With episode 445 of The Corbett Report podcast, James Corbett testifies at the National Citizens' Inquiry. And yes, this is not a trick title. You can tell from the title exactly what today's episode is. This is my testimony to the National Citizens Inquiry. Now, if you happened to miss my Solutions Watch on the National Citizens Inquiry that I uh, released in April, uh, in which I talked to the Volunteer Communications Director of the NCI, Michelle Leduc Catlin, then you might not know what the National Citizens Inquiry is, what it does, what it is attempting to do. Uh, I would highly suggest you take a look at the aforementioned Solutions Watch episode if you are interested in the context for this testimony so you know what kind of proceeding is happening here, and you can find links to watch the other proceedings, etc. Of course, that will be linked up in the show notes as well, so you can go to the National Citizens' Inquiry website and see their various material, video streams and other material about what they are doing, but in a nutshell, essentially this is, as it states, a National Citizens' Inquiry into the Canadian government's de- declaration and response to the so called scandemic, the scan, the so called pandemic, the scandemic, COVID mandates, the uh, freedom protests, etc. So there, uh, it is covering a lot of ground. It is talking to both experts and hearing from various witnesses in various technical capacities. It's also talking to people who have been affected, people who have been affected, for example, by the, the clot shots, the forced medical interventions, and uh, who have had their lives devastated by that. So again, there's a lot of testimony that went on, and uh, there, there will be a report released soon by the National Citizens Inquiry, so uh, stay tuned for that update. But in the meantime, this is the testimony that I delivered on day two of the Ottawa hearings. Again, this was back a month ago, or a few weeks ago now, anyway. And so uh, I'm going to present my testimony. It involves some Q&A from the the commissioners at the end. And I think that this is a nice instructive bit of uh, history slash current events, both for those who have been following my work and know a little bit about the World Health Organization, the Pandemic Treaty, One Health Agenda, etc., but also, of course, to introduce people who don't know about these subjects. So rather than over-talking it, I'm simply going to present the testimony. Enjoy. So I'd like to call our first
0: witness of the day, who is uh, joining us virtually from Japan. So, James, can you hear me? I can
1: hear you. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, I can hear you. I'll ask our AV person to turn your volume up a little bit. So, I'd like to begin today by asking you to state your
1: full name for the record, spelling your first and last name. My name is James Corbett. That's J-A-M-E-S, Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T.
0: And James, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Now, James, you are an independent germ- journalist. You have the Corbett Report, which is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source, and it operates on the principle of open-source intelligence. You've got um, you've got you know a different history in your background, and I have to tell you that I've I've heard from several people um, comments about you that are just full of respect for the work that you do and the integrity of your research. So um, you come to us um, with a very good reputation, and we're pleased to have you join us today. And you are here to discuss with us some kind of global issues, like the global pandemic treaty, the international health regulations, and One Health. And I'm just going to let you march into the presentation that you've prepared,
1: and then we may have questions along the way and certainly afterwards. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. Thank you for inviting me here to talk about this. I think this is incredibly important. And in fact, in some ways goes to the heart of what all of the craziness of the past few years has really been about. So I hope I can do it justice. Uh, I do have a presentation prepared. um, But obviously, please do interrupt and ask for clarification uh, at any point you need to. Uh, in order to start in on these subjects, I think we need to establish some ground facts. And so it would help probably to know what is the World Health Organization. And for those who don't know, the World Health Organization was founded as a specialized agency of the United Nations in 1948, specifically to promote, quote, the attainment by all peoples of the highest possible level of health. And it proposes to achieve this task by acting as, quote, the directing and coordinating authority on international health work. All right, excellent, that that sounds noble. It sounds like something that people could get behind, but as always, the devil is in the details. So some questions that might arise as we hear these words um, that come from the, the founding charter of the World Health Organization, what is health? And who determines the highest possible level of health, let alone how to attain it? And these aren't idle questions. Um, As I know you know from the very impactful, harrowing testimony that you have heard over the course of this inquiry, the answers to those questions really do go to the heart of what we are facing, what we have seen over the past three years, certainly, and what we might see again in the future if we allow this to continue. Lockdowns, mandates, travel restrictions, forced medical interventions and procedures, and rule by decree of governmental or presumed health authorities. So this is an extremely important subject, and uh, I I just want to lay that out before we start diving into the details, because although the worst of the COVID hysteria may or may not be behind us, I think the the real battle is only now beginning, and that battle is a battle over the definition of and the declaration of and the the ability to govern over the next quote unquote, the next pandemic, which we are constantly assured is right around the corner. So uh, this is an incredibly important issue. So today I wanna talk about two separate but related processes that are taking place under the auspices of the World Health Organization. One is, well, it's being referred to officially as the WHO Convention agreement or other international instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, which is a very, very long roundabout way of not saying global pandemic treaty, but they, I think specifically do not call this a pandemic treaty because the word treaty brings with it certain legal obligations and would require ratification by legislatures, at least in those states where they have um, uh, constitutional procedures for governing the uh, signing treaties. Um, But conventions and agreements are covered under the WHO Constitution itself, which grants the governing body of the World Health Organization, the World Health Assembly, the power to, quote, adopt conventions or agreements with respect to any matter within the competence of the organization, which when ratified, will oblige each member of the WHO, which for the record is almost every nation state on earth, of course, Canada, no uh, exception there, um, would oblige them to adopt those conventions or, or to notify the WHO's director general of rejection of those or, or reservations to that, those stipulations within 18 months. So that's that's kind of the, the framework for why it is not being called a global pandemic treaty. But at any rate, this treaty, in all but name, um, is being drafted behind closed doors right now. This process has been going on for uh, the better part of a year now and is expected to be unveiled with a um, an agreement or instru- other instrument um, at the seventy seventh world health assembly, which will be taking place place next May in the meantime, they are having closed door briefings and sessions that are not open to the public uh, in which they are negotiating the text of this document. There is an entire bureaucracy that has been set up to handle this this process of the drafting of this not a treaty. Um, uh, called the INB, the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body. And that has held, uh, I believe, a couple of hearings now for public input into this process. But all that means is that accredited institutions and organizations that get permission can zoom in and uh, basically make a a short presentation about their feelings about what the treaty should include. Uh, Very few people given a chance, of course, to speak out against the process itself. And I think that's Instructive in and of itself, but the meat of the negotiations of this uh, draft treaty are taking place behind closed doors, and there is very little transparency on this process. So we do have a zero draft of this treaty um, that was unveiled earlier this year, uh, and that we do we we can at least see the text that they started with from ground zero, um, which gives us some insight into this process. It includes uh, increased tools for epidemiological genomic surveillance and integrated one health surveillance systems, which might raise the question, what what does any of that mean? And those are good questions, but unfortunately not ones you will find the answers to in this draft, zero draft of the, the treaty, because in the definitions section of the zero draft, you will note that, for example, it says um, under definitions, one health surveillance means dot, 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 and then of course, that's left blank because they, they have not come up with a definition of One Health Surveillance yet, but it is included in the, the text of this zero draft. Um, they talk about the need for integrated One Health Surveillance systems without telling you what One Health Surveillance means. Um, other such things like that abound in this document. Uh, there are obligations for member states to, quote, tackle false, misleading, misinformation or disinformation. And I think given the events of the past few years, we know exactly what that looks like and what form that takes. As someone who had his YouTube channel of nearly 600,000 subscribers scrubbed for daring to talk about such things as the philosophy of science and um, other things related to the events that are going on, I, I know firsthand what that, um, what that legalese text implies. Uh, the Zero Draft also includes a verbiage about control over when where and how a pandemic is declared within each member state's borders. So it says, quote, the INB is encouraged to, dis- to conduct discussions on the matter of the declaration of a pandemic by the WHO director general under the WHOCA plus, which is what they're calling this, not a treaty, and the modalities and terms for such a declaration, including interactions with the international health regulations and other relevant mechanisms and instruments, end quote. So yes even the process by which a pandemic will be declared by the world health organization under this new treaty or whatever they're calling it uh is left open to negotiation and again negotiations which we do not have access to as lowly members of the public who will simply be subjected to whatever rules end up getting getting um forced into this document um i i I think that should be concerning in in and of itself but actually it's in some ways, maybe even worse than most people realize, because at least at this point, the World Health Organization does not officially declare a pandemic to have started or over. There is no official declaration of pandemic. There is an official declaration of a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, which is a different declaration altogether. People might have heard recently that the WHO has declared the pandemic over. But that's not quite true, as even the fact checkers will, in this case, correctly tell you. No, they declared the end of the public health emergency of international concern, but they did not say that the pandemic is over. So this document is at least putting on the table the possibility of literally a declaration of pandemic by the WHO director general in particular, which is interesting for reasons that relate to that P-H-E-I-C. But Let's delve into the other side of this, because as it says in that text talking about this rule of the WHO director general (coughs) declaring a pandemic, and it says, um, including interactions with the international health regulations. And that is the other document that I want to talk about. Before you go there, One is this treaty, which they are not calling a treaty. The other is amendments yeah, to the James, International Health James, can I just, can I just slow you down for a sec before you go to the, the International Health Regulations? Sure. It's because some of
0: the people that will be watching your testimony today, this will be brand new. So <clears throat> you're basically saying that we should be calling this a global pandemic treaty, what they're negotiating. But <clears throat> even the title, they're using words to kind of confuse so that we don't understand what it is and that this is being negotiated behind closed doors. So it's not a public process. Is that
1: right? That is correct in substance. Obviously, it's my supposition that the uh, the unwieldy title contributes to the confusion around this process. Um, but it is not supposition that uh, the word treaty okay. is uh, specifically brings with it certain legal obligations that I think are being obviously avoided um, and, in this lengthy appellation. And then I just want people to understand. So when
0: When you're saying definitions are left blank, when when laws are drafted or treaties are drafted, they'll actually put a definition in and then start using those words. So the definition is very, very, very important. So when James is saying, well, One Health Surveillance, which sounds very Orwellian, or One Health Surveillance System, saying these terms are being used so they have a specific meaning, but the text that's been released, they're not telling us what the meaning is. Um, So I just want people to understand how important that point is that James has brought up, is it makes it impossible for us, reviewing the text that has been released, to really understand the significance. And I can tell you, having drafted legislation for government, that when you actually already have a term, you have a definition in mind. Like, you know what that term means. You're not throwing it in there good measure so so to me that's quite concerning what you've brought up and just also just you know slow this down before you move on is is you're telling us there's actually provisions in there to deal with misinformation so they're already anticipating censoring information that that goes against what they
1: say that is the certainly the implication Uh, there is no Uh, language, at least in the zero draft that's been provided to the public to specifically say how member states are being uh, are committing to tackling false misleading misinformation or disinformation. But I think we have seen exactly how that has been done over the past few years, including direct governmental interference in social media, for example, trying to censor, not trying, but actively censoring people who go against the pronouncements of any declared public health authority. So I think that's uh, essentially what is being declared. But specifically, it's from Article 17, um, Paragraph 1, the parties commit to increase science, public health, and pandemic literacy in the population, as well as access to information on pandemics and their efforts, and tackle false, misleading, misinformation, or disinformation, including through promotion of international cooperation which is an interesting um, addition. And just to clarify, yes, chapter one, the introduction, article one, definition and use of terms. They do have in the zero draft four of the terms defined, but they leave pathogen with pandemic potential, one health approach, one health surveillance, infodemic, interpandemic, current health expenditure, universal health coverage and recovery are all left undefined at this point. Interesting. Okay, sorry for interrupting. Please continue. Uh, Valuable um, things to to elaborate on. All right, so let's talk about the other process that is going on. And I think, um, again, supposition, this this is another part of the deliberately confusing nature of this process. In addition to this treaty or whatever they're calling it, uh, there is a proposal to amend the International Health Regulations. So what are the International Health Regulations? Um, Back in 1951, the World Health Assembly, the governing body of the WHO, adopted the International Sanitary Regulations, which was an attempt to consolidate the multiple and overlapping international agreements that then pertained governing quarantine procedures and other international health controls that were at that time a series of bilateral deals between various countries and that was Quite confusing, obviously, for an increasingly globalized society, international trade, etc. So that was consolidated into this international sanitary regulations. And in, uh, that, that was ultimately turned into the international health regulations in 1969. And those IHR, international health regulations, were amended in 1973 and 1981. At that time, the entirety of the international health regulations covered specifically six diseases, um, but specifically focused on three of them cholera, yellow fever, and plague. Um, but after the SARS 1 hysteria of 2003, um, there was a push for uh, uh, amendment uh, and sweeping reform of these IHR, international health regulations, to take into account the new and novel diseases that could appear in the future. So um, it, that push led to the adoption of the last round of amendments to the IHR in 2005. So that is the most recent edition of the International Health Regulations. And that was the addition of the International Health Regulations that introduced that aforementioned public health emergency of international concern, which is a, a specific declaration that is made ultimately by the director general of the World Health Organization, although supposedly, theoretically, there is an independent advisory board that advises the director general whether or not to declare a public health emergency of international concern uh, for any emerging virus or pandemic or what have you. And that that independent advisory board really, according to what I think the drafters or at least what was presented to the public it was the advisory board that's ultimately making this decision and the director general just gives the rubber stamp to their recommendation of course that turned out not to be the case with the declaration of the monkeypox public health emergency of international concern last year in which we according to reports uh, uh, apparently the director general Tedros broke the deadlock in the advisory panel um by declaring that it was a public health emergency of international concern. And it's interesting that it's even portrayed as a deadlock when, in fact, the majority of the uh, independent advisory board recommended against declaring a PHEIC. But what is a PHEIC? Why is it important? What does it do? Uh, it essentially the declaration of public health emergency of international concern uh, opens up a number of powers uh, for the World Health Organization to up to and including as was reported back in the mid to 2000 during the Ebola um, public health emergency of international concern. It was reported even in Newsweek and other places that the powers that are unlocked by that such a declaration could even include conceivably um, NATO boots on the ground in order to enforce quarantines or Um, deliver medical aid or intervention or what have you. So this is a significant declaration and of course it also uh, brings into effect a number of uh, contracts that are signed uh, for various governments that ultimately obligate them to purchase prophylactics including vaccines or whatever else may be available for the declared health emergency. And that became a significant factor in the first ever declaration of a PHEIC back in 2009 during the swine flu pandemic, which ultimately ended up being a less deadly flu season than regular. But um, that being what it is, the declaration of PHEIC obligated countries around the world, including, of course, in Canada, to purchase swine flu vaccines that... uh, Ultimately, a lot of them ended up getting destroyed, but unused. But whatever, at any rate, it was there. And um, it, it, uh, a, a, an awful lot of money was made on the back of those uh, vaccines. And an independent investigation from the Council of Europe um, the following year, as well as a British medical journal investigation, found that uh, there, there were serious conflicts of interest between the independent advisory board that advised then WHO Director General Margaret Chan to declare that PHEIC and the very pharmaceutical manufacturers who ended up benefiting from that declaration. So that's kind of the context of this international health regulations and what's what's on the table. This current round of negotiations for further amendments to those IHR include a grab bag of proposals of potential amendments. And so some of the ones that pop out immediately include the idea of striking out the words, quote, full respect for the dignity, human rights and fundamental freedoms of persons from the IHR principles. Uh, giving WHO greater authority over surveillance monitoring and control of health threats, including greatly expanding the PHEIC power um, with proposals suggesting giving the director general the authority to declare not a public health emergency of international concern, but an intermediate public health alert where a public health event does not actually reach the threshold of declaration of PHEIC, but quote, requires heightened international awareness and preparedness activity. So whatever that means, Uh, granting the uh, WHO the power of a global emergency health legislature, including, quote, proposals to potentially change the currently non-binding and standing recommendations on medical and or non-medical countermeasures to address a PHEIC that the director general shall issue to WHO member states after consultation, into binding recommendations. So they are actually proposing to change that, that wording from non-binding to binding, which ultimately does make the WHO into a de facto government, at least public health emergency legislature. Uh, it includes proposals for, work quote, working with partners to establish a global digital health certification network which is intended to enable member member states to verify the authenticity of vaccination certificates issued under IHR, as well as other health documents, and proposals to expand the scope of the international health regulations to cover not just demonstrable ongoing public health emergencies, but quote, all risks with a potential to impact public health. In other words, this is an astounding power grab that is again, represented in these two parallel processes, the treaty that they're not calling a treaty and the international health regulations amendments that are separate processes that are being run by separate governing bodies, uh, but that as the WHO states, could overlap. And there are meetings that again, are going on behind closed doors as to whether or how these two processes should merge, or maybe there should be two separate processes, maybe they should continue with one of them, but not the other. Um, It's all left completely opaque at the moment. So those are the two processes. And in order to understand, I think what's really on the table, we have to understand the overall idea behind, um, well, the concept of public health in general and where it is going in the future. I'll pause for a moment in case you need any further clarification well, on anything I've presented so far, though.
0: And, and actually, that's a perfect time for a pause. It, it's interesting. We had uh, a witness yesterday, Denis Rancourt. I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, but he's a physicist by training, but had been a full professor for years at University of Ottawa and an interdisciplinary researcher. And he's presented on all-cause mortality using Canadian and U.S. data, And one of the points he brought up a couple of times was um, in the past when pandemics were declared, be that, you know, avian flu or swine flu or whatever, that there there was no indication in all-cause mortality that there was ever a pandemic. So, in other words, there was – you couldn't see it. But he says you could see, you know, a heat wave for three days. That would show up. Other things would show up. But actually that every single time a pandemic had been declared – that there was no rise in all-cause mortality. And, and so basically the implication is being that these pandemics are declared when there is no public health emergency. And here you are telling us that basically countries like Canada would lose their sovereignty so that if a pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization, that we would have no choice but to allow them to basically counter some pandemic.
1: Are we hearing you correctly about that? Member states are already obligated to do a number of things other under the the WHO Constitution, including implementing the conventions and agreements that are decided upon by the World Health Assembly. So really, there are already obligations that are in place for Canada, um, as we've seen, I think, through the course of the past few years, let alone decades, um, that in fact, for example, um, there is a stipulation in the existing international health regulations that all countries have to comply and to uh, actively assess their compliance with the international health regulations and pandemic preparedness generally. And Canada, as you may or a- may not know, actually, the government of Canada posts on their website occasionally their updates as to their self-assessment of their compliance with the international health regulations. So. Okay. There are, there are already stipulations in place. I think the um, proposed amendments just give the potential for these, um, these obligations to expand. It, it's interesting. So that explains why, I mean, it seems that most of the
0: world, certainly the Western world, followed kind of one plan. And what, James, what I've always found interesting is, is I, you know, and this is just my thinking, but, like, let's say we were facing a serious threat by you know, a, a virus. And you know, we've got to figure out what to do. It would seem to me you'd actually want different countries trying different things so that you could see what works and allow you know, different theories to be tested. But we basically have entered a world where one organization has the power to decide how we deal with a serious threat and if they get it wrong then the whole world will face the consequences of that. Because that's the flip side. If they get it right, well, great, you know, all's well and and off we go. But if they get it wrong, it means that the catastrophe is magnified. Do you have any? But basically, that's where we're at legally.
1: I concur wholeheartedly. I think that gets actually to the real heart of the philosophical issue, let alone the legal uh, issue that we're facing here, um, which is the question of the centralization of power over public health um, in fewer and fewer hands. And, in fact, that's kind of how I'm planning to to end this presentation. But uh, perhaps we should cover one health before.
0: Sure. Can I just that.
1: ask one more thing? Because
0: you just went over it quickly. You were saying they were striking out some principles, something. Can you just read that text slower for us? I think it's yes. important for us to understand. So there's principles in the current international health regulations. So it means principles just so that people here in your testimony understand, um, they were, they're supposed to be what guides the interpretation and application of these regulations. So they're kind of fundamental to what our goals are. But this is, please share with us what is being removed or being proposed to be removed as a principle.
1: Yes. Um, yes. So the, the text that is being proposed to be struck out from um, the the uh, the, print, the article three, which is the principles of the IHR document, is quote with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons, and that the proposed alternate text. Again, people can find this on the WHO's own website. They have a post of the proposed amendments. Um, The proposed alternate text, instead of with full respect for the dignity, human rights and fundamental freedoms of persons, is based on the principles of equity, inclusivity, coherence and in accordance with their common but differentiated responsibilities of the state's parties taking into consideration their social and economic development. I will let you parse that for yourself. But yeah, anyway, no, I, I that think George, is what they want to George Orwell way. would
0: be proud of that one. So I, okay. I concur. Yeah. So yeah, please continue this, and I, I can just share with you that I, I believe we're all, everyone is finding this very interesting, and we haven't had somebody speak to us about these issues.
1: So we certainly appreciate uh, you sharing with us. All right. So. Um, what we have heard so far, I think, is fairly concerning, but actually um, where I think this is going demonstrably is even more concerning. And what this is uh, raising the specter of is the concept of the one health approach or one health agenda, uh, which is being adopted by many different health authorities in many different countries, the CDC in the United States, uh, the World Health Organization is talking about it. In fact, there's an entire institutional framework that's taking place, uh, taking shape around it. One health, that phrase was apparently coined in the wake of the SARS-1 event back in uh, 2003, 2004, to discuss the threat of emerging diseases, diseases emerging from animal populations and the contact of animal and human populations. So zoonotic diseases and that concept started to come on board that public health is not just about your individual health as a human being it is about the health of well nature including animals so the cdc for example defines one health the one health approach as quote a collaborative multi-sectoral and transdisciplinary approach working at the local regional national and global levels with the goal of achieving optimal health outcomes, recognizing the interconnection between people, animal, plants, and their shared environment. So again, I think like the founding principles and uh, definitions in the World Health Organization Charter, this is language that is designed to sound very appealing, but I think quite quickly starts to get into some very interesting philosophical areas, shall we say. I think we have to recognize what is being done here is a rhetorical move to essentially make every corner of the globe, every natural resource, every plant, every animal, every every person, including uh, every person, as part of an interconnected web that forms the new this new definition of public health one health and so embedded within this idea within this concept is if we have a centralized specialized agency of the un like the world health organization which is in charge of coordinating international public health well we need some sort of centralized control that will have jurisdiction essentially over every one of these constituent elements every habitat every resource every animal every plant and every person in order to coordinate not public health but international one health so I think we see where this is starting to go. And of course, it doesn't just involve the World Health Organization. Again, by its very nature, this is such a broad concept that it applies to every nook and cranny of every bureaucratic infrastructure in at least the UN panoply, Um, as evidenced by the fact that the World Health Organization has just joined a quadripartite coalition consisting of the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, bringing in that food concept that was referred to by Catherine Austin Fitz, Uh, the United Nations Environment Program, um, bringing in the specter of, well, the Rio uh, Summit and UNFCCC and the IPCC, etc. The World Organization for Animal Health and the World Health Organization have now combined forces to tackle this one health approach idea. And they have set up a new high-level expert panel quote-unquote to coordinate activities on one health which um, is defined as an integrated unifying approach that aims to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people animals and ecosystems so again this sounds laudable but it is predicated on a devaluing of human life in or equity which I guess we're supposed to assume is always, and in every context, a wonderful word, equity with nature. So humans have to be devalued to the point where we do not prioritize human health over the health of say an animal species or something along those lines. And I think people understand where that concept is going or where it could go. But at any rate, that is the One Health approach that is now being fostered under the auspices of not just the WHO, but a a number of international organizations. So that, that's how we end up locked down in 15-minute cities and eating crickets. Unfortunately so, or at least I believe that is part of the plan. So, yes, as, as you indicate there, this is not just about the concept of health as we tend to think of it, as in you, go, you feel sick and you go to the doctor and you get some medicine or something along those lines. It has to do with every aspect of your life, where you live, how you live, what you eat Um, etc, etc. There's really, it it would be difficult to think of any aspect of your life that would not come under the purview of this One Health idea. That's, um, That's
0: quite striking, actually. So did you have more to share?
1: I can talk about the next steps in this process. Um, So with with regards specifically to the international health regulations, um, again, they are being proposed to be adopted at the 77th World Health Assembly next May um, by a simple majority vote. And um, so given the scope of the the constitution of the WHO and specifically Article 21, um, the amendments of the IHR, when and if they are adopted, will come into force uh, within all member states within 12 months of adoption, unless a state proactively files rejections or reservations within a 10-month period after the adoption. Um, so at any rate, this is a very, very short timetable. And uh, I think that's, again, to the the momentum is on the side of the bureaucratic um, meddlers here, shall we so, say. So um, as regards the to the treaty, that they're not calling a treaty, uh, that would require, I think there are different interpretations of this, but I have read that it would require a two-thirds majority vote in the World Health Assembly, um, with each member state being able to sign and ratify the treaty in accordance with their own domestic laws. But, as I say, I think the Overall, the World Health Organization Constitution, as it is written, is interpretable in ways that would suggest that any World Health Organization member state is obligated to enact whatever convention or agreement is signed. So, um, again, I think that there are different legal opinions of what this is, but I I think we have a very narrow window um, in which to act. And I guess the question for Canadians is what can be done or what should be done. So I guess on the, on the most basic legal political level, obviously, obviously, given the fact that a formal pres- uh, 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 registration of concern um, is required to at least stop this from being automatically implemented in Canada within one year of its adoption, then obviously I think politically people's energies should be directed in that direction, at least at, at this moment, um, and there are movements afoot in a number of different countries right now, um, not only attempting to uh, pre, pro, uh, preventatively um, get their mem- member states out of this process for the negotiation, but actually to withdraw from the WHO altogether. And I note that there was a press conference on the steps of the U.S. Capitol just this week involving several U.S. congressmen. I heard 21 of them actually um, were, were there demanding a complete withdrawal of the United States from the World Health Organization. So that is, I think, at least a sign of the type of political movement that could be happening if people were engaged and aware on these issues. Although, obviously, the Canadian political context may be a little bit different than the American context. And I I think one thing that we could be assured of is that the establishment media would ignore or denigrate um, such a political movement to the extent that they acknowledged it at all. Um, in the exact same way as they did with the Freedom Convoy. But more to the point, I think, uh, perhaps more hopefully, I see uh, the formation of communities of interest, um, public and private membership associations and other uh, organizations forming on the basis of the, the principle that uh, human beings uh, have natural bodily autonomy and uh, medical interventions uh, cannot be enforced or forced upon anyone against their will um and so i think the idea of people coming together on that basis including doctors and other medical professionals and and regular people coming together on that basis to form their own uh sort of splinter medical system I, I, it, to me seems the more thorough going, going approach here not recognizing the diktats of centralized uh health authorities um However, obviously, nothing is going to change unless and until there is a widespread recognition among Canadians and people all over the world of the fundamental underlying issue. What is health and who gets to define that word? Who gets to describe what a health crisis is and what uh, what states, let alone individuals, must do in the event of a declared health crisis? These are the fundamental questions. And who controls those those powers, um, which really raises, I think, the fundamental underlying question of all of this, because what I've been describing with regards to these powers that are coming into view uh, might raise the specter of medical martial law, essentially times of suspension of regular law in which health authorities essentially act as martial authorities, being able to dictate um, Di- dictates law into law just by by saying it, um, which is exactly what we saw over the past few years. But I think it's even worse than that. What we are seeing is the erection of an infrastructure for a, a new paradigm of governance, the biosecurity state. And uh, if you are unfamiliar with the writings of Giorgio Agamben, he is a famed and noted Italian philosopher who has been writing about this subject for the past few years. I highly recommend his work, including an article he wrote in March of 2020, called Biosecurity and Politics, where he identified this as the crux of the issue. He wrote, The total organization of the body of citizens in a way that strengthens maximum adherence to institutions of government, producing a sort of superlative good citizenship in which imposed obligations are presented as evidence of altruism, and the citizen no longer has a right to health, health safety, but becomes juridically obliged to health, biosecurity. And I think that is the specter of what we are facing, the imposition of medical interventions in the name of health, but essentially it's a new paradigm of governance that we are are looking at. And so I think we need to fundamentally question the need for health authorities, centralized control over the medical system, rather than the idea that people can choose for themselves what medical interventions and what medical precautions um, they are willing to take or not take. And also the acknowledgement that with our fundamental right of bodily autonomy comes with it our right to essentially ignore and to go against the outward imposition of dictates and obligations by any presumed health authority so any treaty any convention so, any so international just, health regulations that are signed that I'm, do not recognize fundamentally <laughs> informed medical consent James the right I'm just going to gonna step in if you let me so
0: and void okay so um it's interesting. So you're telling us stuff and I I've you know I've just kind of in, when I do have time to to see non-mainstream media you hear about international health regulations and that this, this is going on and, but I can tell you personally I've not heard this type of detail that you're providing. So basically Canada is you know walking into the situation where really our entire sovereignty could be given up in the name of this you know, One Health initiative where our, our, everything from our food supply to our complete medical system to our freedoms um, could be dictated from an, an outside source. That's basically what's happening and we're, we're not hearing anything about it
1: yes i think it
0: is already happening and yes we are not hearing about it are you are you aware of a single you know group or anyone that is on this issue in canada that should be given some support or we could be directed to Uh,
1: there are a number of individuals and independent media uh, that are talking about these issues Um, but in terms of actual coordinated political movement on this front i i don't know i'm as I say, I live in Japan, so I am not right. um, in okay. touch with any particular group no honestly. no I was just
0: asking because if you're not aware of one then then perhaps that there's you know a, a need that needs to be filled here and that's important for us to know also it it's interesting I just you know as the the national citizens inquiry has been moving about province to province, I um, ended up being out for dinner with you know some of the people involved in the NCI including. Um, local organizers in Vancouver for supper, and you know sitting to my left was a person from Quebec that lives on a, a fairly sizable acreage who is telling me that that the, his chickens have to be registered, and he 's only allowed three chickens and Then somebody living on a farm in b c is saying, Oh, I have to register every cow, every sheep, every chicken like that the amount of control and then I have a personal friend in Alberta who's, you know, being told that, well, any water body, they have to have a fence this size, and that would include their rain barrel. Like, it's just, there's the, all of a sudden this micromanagement of rural properties and animals being imposed from above, which makes zero sense um, unless there is an effort to basically have total control over, you know, food supply and animals and, and rural properties. And it sounds like this would be connected.
1: I think it is. um, But on that note, I think that the pushback that we're seeing uh, from Alberta, from Saskatchewan, um, the Alberta Sovereignty Act or whatever these things are being called, um, which I'm not following the passage of these these bills um, uh, closely, but I understand would uh, essentially be a declaration of the provincial government's right to uh, exclude federal authorities from butting in on their jurisdiction, which, of course, health is actually a provincial um, jurisdiction, not federal. Right,
0: okay. I'm going to uh, turn you over to the commissioners to see if the commissioners have questions, and they do.
2: Good morning, and thank you for um, coming and providing your testimony. You know, we're uh, completed 22 days of testimony across the country at the NCI right now, and it's, it's like a large jigsaw puzzle. That seems to be coming together. And when I was listening to your testimony, it reminded me of some testimony I think we had in Vancouver. And one of the witnesses held up a document that they said was prepared by Teresa Tam. And what it was is that the climate emergency was the biggest threat to human health in Canada. And I kind of wondered about that. But are you aware of that document? And Does that kind of fit in with this whole uh, WHO control and pandemics that you're talking about? I am not familiar with that document in particular,
1: but I am certainly aware of many pronouncements along those lines that have been made um, over the past few years. And I certainly do see that as absolutely a fundamental part of the One Health agenda. I think the, um, the preparation of the public for the idea of a climate crisis, climate emergency, and ultimately lockdowns on the basis of such an emergency has been foreseen, has been talked about, has been openly written about by a number of people and institutions, the World Economic Forum and others uh, for years now. And so I definitely see that as part of the unfolding One Health Agenda.
2: And I I forgot to mention, and I don't know whether she still is, but I know she was, Teresa Tam was the head of one of the WHO health committees. I can't quite recall which one it was, but I believe it just started um, a few years ago, and and again, I I don't recall whether she's still the head of that or not. But it certainly, it goes right along with what you're saying. The other, we had another witness in um, I think it was Vancouver, and she was an expert in international law and human rights. And she, in her testimony, she had demonstrated how. Um, Canada during the uh, pandemic had violated or allegedly violated a number of the human rights which are guaranteed under the UN treaties, underneath the, um, the, um, uh, the, a number of health treaties. And it's just interesting then how these human rights guaranteed under similar documentation by the UN are being trampled on by the health care directives that are being contemplated or being implemented by the by the uh, the WHO through the UN, it, are you aware of of those that contradiction between human rights uh, treaties and what you're talking about here, the proposed WHO? Uh
1: uh, yes, in a sense, but I think that the legal documents and constitutions and other things that um, presumably are we are ruled by or that it constitutes the rule of law are are not really worth the paper that they're written on, generally speaking. And in fact, that's, of course, I I would say exactly what we've seen over the evisceration of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms over the past few years. Uh, In fact, uh, Giorgio Ogombin, who I mentioned earlier, um, wrote an entire book about states of exception, um, talking about that, that issue and exploring it from the philosophical and jurisprudence and historical angle Um, that there is always a moment of aporia in these constitutional documents that essentially allow for the declaration of some sort of emergency that says all the rules are aside. And I would note specifically with regards to the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that it propounds. um, They all sound wonderful and woolly until you get to Article 29, uh, Paragraph 3, which says these rights and freedoms may in no case be exercised contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations. So essentially, yes, you can have all these wonderful rights unless and until the United Nations says you can't, and then you can't. So I, I think those are the types of le- legal trickery that are played
2: um, in these documents. Well, I think that's why you rightly pointed out definitions and the... the, um, the uh grab bag of words that were in definitions and Canadians if they aren't should be very much aware of how their constitutional rights or their Charter of Rights and Freedoms was completely uh, neutralized by what seemed to be innocuous words uh, high minded words Uh, I mean if we're not aware of those things now and and scared to death about these definitions that go on and on and on and could mean anything I mean (laughs) <laughs> but it seems to me that you're saying that this is a, um, a common practice uh, that they put in these kinds of words. They can manipulate any way they wish.
1: I, I think that is the case. As I say, I would definitely ad- uh, direct you to Agamben on that issue. He has written extensively about this, and uh, it is demonstrable in a number of, of documents. And there is, generally speaking, some sort of emergency clause or an emergency act. Uh, public order emergency, for example, that can be declared that will suspend basic constitutional rights.
2: The last thing um, you know, I, when I was listening to your presentation and also listening to some comments made by Mr. Buckley it reminded me of what's happened so many times in the past I mean, in in um, Soviet Russia, you know, they got a hold of the um, of the food production and they murdered or starve to death, uh, it's 20 million Ukrainians, I can't remember what the number is, it's in, they argue about what that number is. In China they did the same thing during the late 1950s and early 1960s and they took control out of all of the, all of the food production. And aren't, are, are we seeing that same thing happening today in Canada and, and in the Western world, but more importantly, at least to me, in Canada?
1: I would say anyone who isn't paying attention to the consolidation of the food supply in the hands of fewer and fewer corporate interests, um, but also governed over by a in- international institutional infrastructure, uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization and other associated institutions, if you're not concerned by that process, then you're probably not paying attention. And in fact, the consolidation is getting worse and worse as we step forward into the great food reset which has uh, been declared, and that involves such things as lab-grown meat um, to try to cut down on the horrible pollution that we know that actual regular farming and ranching are are, uh, wreaking on our environment, except for a recent report that I I may or may not throw any kind of spanner in those works, um, that apparently the lab-grown meat will be 25 times more uh, energy and resource intensive than regular farming. I wonder if that will de- de- uh, in any way derail the plans. But at any rate, uh, this, is the, th- this is definitely a part, again, of that One Health agenda and that One Health approach. And the consolidation of the food supply in the hands of a few corporations cannot be ultimately for the benefit of all humanity. Um, there is, uh, at the most basic level, a very obvious financial um, incentive for corporations to do this, but from the perspective of people who are literally thinking about trying to manage the human population in general, there could be no greater choke point for doing that than by controlling and manipulating and rationing the food supply. Yeah,
2: um, you know, historically speaking, except for a handful of people at the top, some of those names that we know, central planning State Soviet style planning has never been successful. I mean, is this, have we not learned our lesson in history? I mean, the 20th century um, was predicted to be the century of mass, the masses, mass control. There were a number of books written in the late 1800s about that. And have we not learned our lesson? It, 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 we had a witness yesterday who we talked about the definition of fascism, and these are not their words, these are my words. They, they're talking about us going into fascism on steroids because the, you know the, in, in the past they never had the technological electronic control and brainwashing that we have today. I mean, have we not, will we not <laughs> learn our lessons from history? Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem so. And
1: uh, actually, history would give us the proper terminology for this because people are grasping around for historical precedents and political analogs and they talk about fascism, they talk about communism. What they should be talking about is technocracy. And that was a movement that um, was quite popular in the United States and in Canada in the 1930s. And in fact, um, Elon Musk's Canadian grandfather was a prominent member in the Canadian technocratic a political movement um, who ultimately ended up fleeing Canada and going to South Africa, but that's another story. But technocracy was an idea that was predicated on the idea not of a fascist system, not a communist system, but the control of society, the engineering of society at a scientific and technical level um, by technical experts who would decide, who would calculate the entire energy inputs and outputs of the entire economy and base the economy around that calculation. And they would issue energy credits to the people who would then use those energy credits to purchase items. And that was a truly bizarre and crazy idea in the 1930s because it would have required systems for continuously monitoring and surveilling every transaction in the entire economy in real time, which of course didn't exist in the 1930s. That technology exists now, and although the historical technocratic movement in technocracy, Inc., which was one of its uh, products, uh, has, well, not exactly disappeared, but is certainly not a prominent political part. But I think that ideology is still around, and that, that, that really starts to explain some of the directions that we're heading. For example, the concept of carbon rationing, and the concept of universal basic income, and some of these other concepts that are floating around are at base technocratic ideas. That have been adapted and adopted for the terminology that appeals to us in the 21st century but I think if we don't understand that history and where that that uh, that idea developed from I think we will basically not truly be able to understand
2: what is happening until it's too late well yeah I mean we now have state-sponsored euthanasia we have the state holding back life-saving medical procedures from a lady who testified yesterday because she wouldn't comply with something, you know, a procedure that had nothing to do with the transplant. We have state-based racism, uh, where they're pitting every different group of people against each other, regardless of what what measure you want to look at. We have unprecedented. A propaganda, 24 hours a day. People carry. People are acting like cyborgs. Cyborgs, where they carry a a device in their pocket, and they think because it's not under their skin, it, it's they're not a cyborg. But they, you know, even in this room, we hear the phones ringing and beeping and clinking and clanging. I mean. This is at an, from what I understand from you and I understand from some of the other witnesses, this is at an unprecedented level of control and therefore it's at an unprecedented, we as a race, as a, as a human race, are at an unprecedented risk to their will. Is, 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 that, is that not, can you comment on that statement?
1: Yes, uh, let me underline and underscore exactly what you're saying there. For um, any of the commissioners who do not know about it, I would wholeheartedly exhort you to look into Policy Horizons Canada, which is an arm of Canadian government that a few years ago produced a document on biodigital convergence, which talks uh, exactly about what you're talking about, ultimately towards the creation of that cyborg intermediate species that whatever we are becoming with this increasing adoption of technology, where they actually talk about the ways that uh, at at the medical uh, level we will be more and more merged with machines. And uh, again, you have to read this document in its own words, Uh, don't take my word for it. Um, But one of the things that they talk about in the document is the breakdown of the philosophy of vitalism, which is the idea that there is actually a real and meaningful distinction between organic life and inorganic matter. And they say that those lines are blurring because now people and, and animals and plants are, are engineerable and we can put various bio biomechanical devices inside of them and we can tinker and alter them. So the, the actual distinction between life and non-life is is beginning to break down and that they, I believe, frame that in a positive context in their documents. So, um, yes, these are some very fundamental questions that we're facing. This, is, this is, agenda is really much about much more than simply public health. I think this is about the, the real question of the definition of human. What, it, what does it mean to be human? What is the value of human life itself? And uh, obviously it does raise the specter of eugenics and other really terrible ideas from history. And ultimately, I think it, you could trace it back to, to Malthus and the, the fundamental Malthusian idea that there are, there are too many people and that we must, we must get rid of some portion of the population so that we can continue to live. Um, I, I, those, those fundamental philosophical wrong turns, I would say, continue to uh, haunt humanity. And that is the direction in which I think all of this institutional momentum is heading. Thank you, sir.
3: Thank you so much for your testimony today. Um, It's been a while since I studied international law, a number of decades, I guess, back in law school. But uh, my understanding was always that international law isn't really a set of rules that are imposed on countries, but it's more a set of agreements that countries reach with each other about how they're going to uh, behave uh, with e- both with each other and, and internally. And so I guess with that framework in mind and thinking about the uh, treaty that you've talked about today and the international health regulations, should we be thinking about these documents and these amendments to these as things that really Canada is signing up to be binding and to be bound by, or should we really be looking at these as something that maybe just will give our politicians legal cover for if they want to implement things that maybe aren't in the best interests of Canadians, um, but that they can then turn to and say, well, but it's, it's the law, it's, we've signed up to this
1: there is absolutely an element of that and i think the underlying principle that we have to understand here is that exactly right there is nothing that would stop canada from tomorrow declaring we are not part of the world health organization and making it so um by by fiat it it can be done and of course there is actually a process for withdrawing from the world health organization etc but what would happen if canada just simply declared themselves to be out of the world health organization well then by by decree, it could essentially be manifested in reality because, as you say, there is no, there, there is no international courts that could adjudicate this in a way that they could impose rules from the outside. It has to be done to some extent willingly. So, yes, uh, it is important to keep that in mind because I think that is part of what I'm gesturing towards, not just with the political solution, but the political solution is a manifestation of that change in public perception and public consciousness that, in fact, actually it is, it is what we are deciding. Now, of course, there could be and presumably would be many different um, knock-on effects in terms of Canada's relation with the United Nations and, and with various other states, etc. if they were to make such a declaration. But at the end of the day, it is, it is essentially a choice that each member state makes.
3: Thank you.
4: Thank thank you very much for your root-cut analysis of this very, very complex situation. Uh, It actually goes in many different dimensions in terms of uh, the definition, as you mentioned. The one health, to me, evoke immediately this notion by a lot of technocrats that they really dream of one-size-fits-all solution because they think they know it all, right? And if we just listen then everything would be fine. Uh, It seems to me, as you pointed out, that we are living a paradigm shift in terms of governance. But to some extent, it seems to me that since the dawn of civilization, there's been a kind of a dream by rulers to control everything. It was not possible. Sometime they had more control by fiat with soldiers and stuff but nowadays the the main way to control is information and the connection of people across the world and because what seems to be able to connect in a virtual world with internet and stuff, I, I think that people in the ruling class, the technocrat, think that it's now possible to actually control the world because they have technology that will allow them to do that. So. We are sort of back to the same sort of conflicts between what I would call the subsidiarity principle as a model of governance versus a uh, top-down governance with wise people that know it all and will do it for our own good. The issue I found in terms of fighting that, and you've mentioned a few few areas where we could actually be more active and combat it, is that... (laughs) human beings being what they are, no human beings is infallible and can actually fall prey to corruption. And some people are more susceptible to that than others, but in the end, if you have good institution, this will actually keep that under control to some extent. So as you move the control or the regulation or the exercise of power in any area, higher and higher, what is going to be the control mechanism to ensure that the wise people on those boards are smart enough and, I would say, uh, honest enough to do the right thing? And if they don't, then what? Who's going to be the arbiter that says, guys, you're not doing the right thing? We need to change you. We need to take care of your conflict of interest. Who's going to rule that? That, to me, seems to be the issue, and I don't see of any solution to do that in a really high-level international governance where the people there are not elected. There's no, where's the accountability in this system, and is it possible to do it effectively? It has always struck me as a kind
1: of a a strange conundrum that we can recognize that uh, people are inherently fallible, at the very least, and corrupt, corruptible at any rate. Um, And yet, those from that very same pool of fallible and corrupt people, we should be able to pick people who will then rule over vast swaths of humanity for the best interest of all. It's always struck me as a strange contradiction in terms. but the question ultimately, I think, answers itself because, as you say, as we get further up that ladder um, towards more and more centralized control um, by fewer and fewer people over more and more of the globe's population with less and less accountability, it, uh, obviously there there is less and less mechanism for there to be actual control when people start to act in fallible and corrupt ways. So the obvious answer to that is, well, then we need to decentralize and and get down closer to a local level where people have more accountability over what's going wrong. And as was raised earlier in the questioning, uh, I think it's important to understand that the idea isn't that that would somehow solve the problem of corruption or uh, fallibility. Of course, there would still be problems in various places. But there would, at the very least, be a plethora of different alternatives that people could turn to. Well, if I don't if I don't agree or like this particular paradigm of governance, well, there's this other one, just over there. And I think the the expansion of basically the competing systems of control, at any rate, competition is generally good, and it is, I think, good in the concept of um, of creating positions of power and control. Of course, I. Being myself, I tend to take that to its logical conclusion, which is ultimately power should be decentralized all the way down to the individual, but I know that's seen as a radical idea for many. At any rate, I would be happier if the institutional momentum was going in the opposite direction and less power was being ceded to the centralized authorities rather than more.
4: Thank you very much.
5: Good morning, James. Thank you for your testimony. I tend to judge uh, organizations by the mantra that that you use, and I noticed that you mentioned DAI, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. So when I think of that from the WHO perspective, I think of Taiwan, and I don't want to get into the one China, uh, two states issue, but I think of Taiwan wanting to um, apply to be a member of the WHO since 1971. They've continued to make that request and they continue to be denied. And then I think of your testimony that there should be a parallel kind of movement for democracies of people who are free. Would it be possible in just kind of taking all of those thoughts together and, and make it a possibility for Taiwan and Canada to agree to move forward as a free and democratic society where persons have personal autonomy and continue to work outside of who and instead of, uh, Taiwan trying to become a member. I know in 2022, they were looking at observer status, but even as an observer status, as you allude, we don't really have input and a possible, um, the opportunity for feedback. So I'm just wondering, would that be a starting point if we could get democracies outside of who, who was rejected to start the movement?
1: It it certainly would be a possibility, and in fact, uh, often I find it interesting that we uh, we get so normalized and conditioned into the status quo that we forget that there was a time before the status quo. So thinking, for example, about the International Sanitary Regulations that became the International Health Regulations, as I say, there was a a vast sea of bilateral and trilateral and other deals between various nations for quarantine regulations and other medical procedures um, that pertained at that time, and it was seen as just this horribly complex mess and, well, we have to sort out, you know, where is this coming from and what needs to be done with it and blah, 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 rather than just one overall international health regulations that all of these states will agree to and it'll make it easier. But in fact, The very same technologies and other things that are being talked about now that could make, for example, digital health certificates, i.e. vaccine passports or what have you, feasible, is the very same technology that would make those types of bilateral relations. Canada agreeing to work with Taiwan and we will set up this particular uh, regime of health uh, regulations and controls and whatever between our two nations. That would actually be and, – and to imagine if Canada did that bilaterally with every country that they traded with or had um, relations with, why would that be difficult in this technological age where – knowing the the process for for importing goods or whatever can be obviously put into an app and put on everyone's phone. It wouldn't be a difficult thing to do in this case. But now we've been so trained into the idea that it must be handled in one overarching international health regulations that governs almost every state on the planet. Why? Uh, So I think we do need to interrogate that fundamental assumption. And it should be noted that there are alternate organizations to the World Health Organization that are out there, the World Council for Health and other things, which are predicated on the idea of individual human uh, autonomy, bodily autonomy, health freedom, etc., rather than the principles of the World Health Organization. It's just you don't, or most people don't know about the World Council for Health because um, they don't have the funding of the pharmaceutical industry and others behind them.
5: And then my last question is just about Taiwan itself and how they managed through the pandemic. When you think of Taiwan being a little bit bigger than Vancouver Island and housing 23 million residents, I'm just wondering, and, and at the end of, somewhere in the pandemic when I checked on there's how they were doing, they had eight deaths. And I just kind of think that um, maybe we should be following what they were doing. And so when we talk about health and who being mandated to protect our health, and then still rejecting Taiwan as a viable example. I just wonder what your thoughts are there.
1: Well, as I understand, you did hear testimony from Denis Roncourt, and I have interviewed him about the the mortality statistics surrounding the so-called pandemic, et cetera, that, um, as he testifies, uh, indicates that there was no identifiable wave of deaths that were attributable to some novel virus, et cetera. So at any rate, um, I think that does shows something about just the way that we count and order these statistics could have a, an effect on how the country manages them. But even if we were to accept at face value just the terms of the World Health Organization and other presumed health authorities about how to measure these statistics, I will note that the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response has an interesting admission on their um, uh, recommendation report, which is available on their website, namely that um, they they look at the different measures that different countries took uh, for pandemic preparedness before this so-called declared pandemic took place, and they plotted them against the, at least the reported death rate um, in each country. And you can look at the graph that they came up with, which shows that there was absolutely no correspondence whatsoever between the the compliance with various pandemic preparedness ideas that are being propounded by the World Health Organization and the ultimate outcome in terms of measured death rate from the pandemic. So I I don't take those statistics seriously, but those are the official statistics, and you can look at them and see that, for example, um, Canada highly compliant, uh, getting a 93 out of 100 score for um, external evaluation of um, pandemic preparedness, and yet having one of the, the top death rates in uh, this graph. Um, so it, it shows that whatever they are proposing in terms of pandemic preparedness, and in terms of how we will, how we should position ourselves for the future is demonstrably, quantifiably, according to their own statistics, clearly made-up nonsense. So I don't know why we should be um, putting any faith whatsoever in uh, these proposals from the the World Health Organization and others about what to do for pandemic preparedness.
5: Thank you very much.
0: (coughs) James, those are the Commissioner's questions. Uh, There being no further Commissioner questions, on behalf of the National Citizens' Inquiry, I sincerely thank you for joining us today and sharing this information. Thank you for the
1: opportunity.